This podcast may contain disturbing content for some listeners. It's intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. So I learned something interesting this week about, do you remember like at different times, both like in the mainstream media and in in our research, like feet will show up in shoes? Yes. So I, I don't have the source on this. I was reading it. It's like, it was a person commenting on Facebook. Like apparently quite a few of those feet have been identified. Sure. And a lot of them are like the ones that sort of wash up on beaches, etc. cetera. Um, they're suicide victims. Did you know this? Uh, that would be my guess. Yeah. And I don't know, like the most recent one that I was this sort of tied to, um, they identified this woman, uh, Gerilyn Smith. She went missing in January of 2018 in Washington. In December of 2021, her foot was found near the mouth of the Elwa River. And, like, you know, they knew the size of the shoe and the make of the shoe. But the case was sort of lost without age, height, weight, all those things that you would put in. But there was a crowdfund that um, Clallam County Sheriff's Office did. And they partnered up with Othram Labs. And they compared the DNA from the foot to one of Gerilyn's surviving family members. Uh, I don't think that's, like, this is one of those cases where when she went missing, her car was parked near, like, uh, I think it was a bridge. Like, I'm, I'm sort of saying all of this off the cuff. But my point is, I don't think there's a big question of whether or not she had harmed herself as opposed to like having had harm come to her like suicide versus homicide, I guess, or accident slash suicide versus homicide. Anyways, she's been identified based off of her foot. And I was like, you know, people could keep finding parts of her for years if she jumped from a bridge. Um, But initially they had called it a severed foot, which I guess is accurate. There hasn't been any speculation about how that happened, right? No. If I'm remembering her case correctly, because it popped up as a news item, um, and I sort of was talking to someone else on Facebook, and they shared it with me, and this person's like a moderator of one of those big groups that has 500,000 people for like investigation discovery. And she was like, it's so interesting that they described it as severed, when the thought was that she had committed suicide. Now, I don't know for sure that it is a suicide because I didn't see anything about that. But typically, when they throw the cause of her death is not determined out there, I tend to think they're not going to investigate much further. Uh, I don't see how they could uh, determine a cause of death from a foot. Right. And I guess it would be dependent on finding other parts and something changing. 
but the story was as far as like when she went missing that she was uh, potentially a suicide victim. Anyway, so I thought that was interesting. Well, is the Fed something that easily detaches? Well, so this is where um, I was debating like how far to get into this. So uh, first of all, she won't come out of NamUs with this. That's one of the things I was confirming this morning. And the story was uh, she and her husband went to bed and then he had gone to the couch during the night. I think it was a Saturday night. And the next morning he went to church and he didn't see her. And when he got home, she was gone. And he found her car parked near the Ella River Bridge. And search and rescue dogs had tracked her scent to the middle of the bridge over the river. And divers searched the river. And they, you know, they had search parties along the, uh, the banks of the river down to these little beaches. And they didn't find her. But what this person was explaining to me is it would be if someone jumped from a bridge feet first. Broken. And, uh, yeah, and there were injuries to the feet or ankles or legs, then yes, um, that is something that you could expect to happen. As decomposition in the water occurred, the person would separate sort of naturally. Does she leave a note? Um, I, I think she did. And the reason I say that is because going from memory, which is a couple years old, but I want to say shortly after she went missing, the family put out a obituary, like maybe in February or sometime shortly after. Um, I don't know if I'm connecting all that correctly in my head, but I think that they put out an obituary that she had passed away. Well, the search indicated that by some means uh, she, from her vehicle, went to the middle of the bridge and disappeared, right? <laughs> According to the dogs, um, right? Yeah, that was that was what was in the official like report. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, a presumption could have been made from that. Um, you know, I feel like, um, as time wears on and this is kind of callous of me, I think, cause I have a lot of sympathy for people who are depressed or, uh, whatever ends up making them, uh, end up committing suicide. Sure. But I really wish, uh, they could make it clear that's what they're doing. Yeah, you and I have talked about that. Like, if someone would just tell one person or, like, mail a letter or a note or whatever. Well, and I hate to be that way, but there's so many missing people that are absolutely just suicides. They didn't want to live any longer. And I'm pretty good at spotting them, but I also have in the back of my mind that it's exactly what you know, some like psychopathic serial killer would want people to think about some of their victims, right? Was that yeah. they, they just disappeared because they committed suicide. But it just, I think about that all the time uh, because it, it's a category, right? It's a category of missing people um, that we lump them sort of together. I can see why she's not taking out, taken out a name as based on the foot. I mean, you could live without a foot. Right. Yeah. Um, and uh, I hate it for her family and I hate it that she went through that and um, it happened to her. But there's nothing criminal about 
what occurred there if she did, in fact, just jump off the bridge, right? Yeah. And so it is interesting, though, that um, I, I think that the DNA funding issue, which you mentioned in this case, they had to raise some money through a GoFundMe, and they always manage to do it, it seems like. But I think that um, that needs to, like, federal funds need to be available to, especially, like, body parts like that, um, like random body parts showing up. I think federal funds need to be, like, uh, allocated for DNA testing. Well, that came up. Okay, so there's this project that I'm, I'm working on outside of, like, what we do here. And I had a conversation, um, I had I actually had a conversation with a person from the FBI, and I had a conversation with a person from uh, the Department of Justice that does a lot of the funding. And this is interesting. I didn't know if you knew this. So in NamUs, like if you go on NamUs right now and you were like uh, to go into like missing and unclaimed people, they have like the different dashboards. Right. Um, if you were to go into like just the unidentified persons right now, it would be something like 14,000 results or whatever. And if you go into the unclaimed persons, it's a, it's a number like 15,000. Mm-hmm. Um, this is uh, what came from that, that other project that I thought you would find interesting because you're talking about the federal funding. And that was specifically what I was asking about. And I was largely dealing with um, children in this, this thing I'm working on, but uh, the I asked the FBI person to compare NCIC entries to NamUs entries for me, like mm-hmm. just on those three categories. So, um, and I don't like I'm I'm gonna like guesstimate off the top of my head. I think it's something around twenty two thousand missing people are in there right now. Um, and NamUs and NamUs, um, and I think the number is something like. Uh, did I? I think I just said the other numbers. The uh, unidentified persons is something like fifteen thousand, and I think the unclaimed persons is something like maybe around fifteen thousand too. But, I can but, tell you the numbers. The missing people. Uh, there's twenty two thousand seven hundred and sixty three. Uh, the unidentified people. Uh, Fourteen thousand three hundred and seventy eight, and the unclaimed people. Fifteen thousand four hundred and thirteen. Okay, so this is this is what came up because I've uh, I've been researching some of these older cases for something I'm doing, and then I, I go through and I research cases like the one we're going to briefly talk about today at some point. Here's here were the numbers that they gave me this week. So the open missing persons in NCIC right now is sixty one thousand. Yeah, that seems about right. And so there's a difference there between that 61,000 and the 22,000 and change. It's 40,000, right? Yeah. Um, and the Is it a quicker turnover? Um, so the, the I asked for a specific answer and I got a roundabout answer. The gist of it was um, in talking to the FBI, they basically said there's a lot of reasons for those that that number being different and uh it's because certain things only make it into ncic as missing people even though they're actually sort of homicide investigations certain things make it in where it's runaways it's trafficking they're like classified as other things than just missing people and and he said eventually they do make their way 
like towards NamUs, but there's a percentage of those cases that'll be closed. He said there is a gap there, and he recognized the gap. Um, in terms of unclaimed persons, uh, this shocked me. There are 31,000 unclaimed persons in yeah, NCIC. That's, that's about double, right? Yeah, it's double. But this was the number um, that really stood out to me. And it, it relates to your comment about federal funds. As of the time that he was speaking to me, there are 46,738, and I wrote this down because, uh, it, like I said, it related to something else I was doing, sets of unidentified remains. So about three times the number. Yeah. yeah. And they, like, so I, I say this to you from the perspective of, like, if we think that the, you know, the 15,000 are difficult, to source the funds for. Um, I, I agree with you. There needs to be some kind of solution related to that funding. And I don't know exactly what that would be, but you know, some, some kind of interesting budget and some kind of missing persons bureau at a federal level that was able to be funded from maybe some other projects that aren't using as much money anymore. I think that the difficulty lies in um, how you would dis distinguish missing persons cases because some of them legitimately like the only reason they go to law enforcement is because there's nobody else to take them. Yeah. And he, he pointed out to me that there was this chunk and I want to say it was about 10%. It might've been higher than that. Um, that were sort of immigration related, which you and I have talked about those cases in the past. They do not always make their way into NamUs because there's honestly nobody on the U.S. side to legitimately get a report on those people. Well, the unidentified bodies do. They show up a lot. In fact, they get numbered uh, based on the county. I guess I'm coming from the perspective of there's missing no one person. to ask. Well, yeah, missing persons, but also like there's a there's a common ground there. Um, and we're going to get to that in a minute because we're going to talk about something that happened in CODIS, but the common ground there is like some of those missing persons are some of those unidentified remains. Oh yeah. I would say a lot of them are. Um, I think it becomes partly a funding issue and it becomes partly an issue of manpower. Um, Cause you know, they, the backlogs that happen, it's interesting. There's these two areas that I think, something has to be done about. And the first one is actually sexual assault backlogs, which something is slowly being done about that. Um, that's an area that I think is important. And I think that unidentified remains, interestingly, use the same resources and have the same problem that those kits have. Because there was like horror stories over the last few years where certain jurisdictions would just have thousands and thousands of cases on backlog where they had done these um, sexual assault recovery kits that weren't being um, processed. And I think the same is true with the unidentified remains. Right. And it's a resource issue. And, you know, I, I was flat out told that there's at least 10% of them that they'll never get DNA from. They just know they're human remains. That was interesting to me. Huh. I wonder what uh, makes that, a variety of reasons. And they, they, so the top ones were fire and water when, um, 
when they have like ashed out remains, sometimes it's very difficult to get a profile. And if, uh, if it's older remains in water, sometimes it's very difficult to get a profile. That's interesting. I think the technology will catch up. And that's, that's what, yeah, that's sort of what the conversation was about. It was about the conversation. Uh, the conversation was about the technology now versus the technology in the nineties and how much it's advanced in just 20 years. Um, but I also, I did want to know the differences between like the, the crime information computers versus like what's publicly facing on NamUs because, and you know, this is another thing that came up was I frequent, I frequently will search for really specific words in NamUs and not know where the hit came from. So for instance, if I go searching for white females of a certain age in a certain area and I use the circumstances rope, like R O P E, Mm-hmm. sometimes I'll get 50 hits and three of them will mention something about rope or some like rope will be in some word in the circumstances. And sometimes they're not. Sometimes I can scour over every word and there's no mention of why it came back to me with rope. So I think that's on that the, case uh, file. That's not visible. Yeah, it's not publicly facing. You know what? I've encountered that before, too. Um, It happens a lot of times with uh, database searches. And um, it's interesting. Uh, It it hits as a match, even though you can't see the match. So there's something to it, right? I think um, once the funding catches up and there's funding available... I think that that will bring about breakthroughs in the technology as well once you get more companies doing the testing. Well, I think the technology will continue to advance. Um, and, you know, as technology advances, the price point drops, right? Um, in theory, DNA should be super cheap at this point to run. I mean, you can get a, you know, a commercial DNA test and get your ancestry profile for, you know, if you get it on sale, like 30 bucks or something. Right. Yeah. Um, I know that this is a little different, but, um, it is, you know, a lot of that, the work that's done is volunteer. And I think that, um, as time goes by, it's going to be more and more apparent at, it will actually end up saving law enforcement money in the long run to go ahead and invest in DNA testing because the, the quicker matches are made and things are closed, the less time is wasted. Right. Well, yeah, you and I have been sort of shocked that some things aren't cross matched automatically. And I've been surprised recently in some of the different social media groups I follow, but I don't really comment a lot um, at people's misunderstanding of how like CODIS works and, you know, some of the, uh, there's some general misunderstanding because it's it's actually on laboratories, even if it's within a criminal agency or a, you know a police or sheriff's agency or a state or local or federal agency. It's not actually the law enforcement. They're just making the request. The lab techs are the ones who are physically putting things in. Um, and then analysts are the ones making the matches. And I think that people don't necessarily understand how uh, that process will eventually be more automated and that will also assist. Well, sure. And, you know, 
essentially, I think what happens is um, they just haven't made the correlation yet where it runs like automatically to match against things. And, you know, like you said, the techs are getting the profiles, the analysts are cross-referencing them and, you know, they're just trying to get their job done. They don't have time to sit there and think about, um, you know, what could we do to make this better? Right. That's a whole diff- that's like an operations job, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's a whole different thing, but you've got to get, it is a lot. I think, do you have an example of what you've seen recently? I'm, I'm just curious what somebody has misunderstood. Well, uh, just people talking about, you know, such and such police agency needs to put such and such samples into CODIS and the way, so the way that it sort of gets brought up in some of those instances, I think people are picturing like a police officer taking an evidence bag and like walking it over to a lab somewhere and like, you know, plugging in. I don't know. Like, I don't know if they picture some kind of like magic microwave looking machine where they drop the thing in there and a DNA sample pops out. They're missing like how evidence gets processed and it, it comes up in this, this next case. You want to, you want to talk about this case really quick? Cause I'll mention like where sure. people. Okay. So you and I did a pretty deep dive into Ted Bundy yeah. and he, he had some ties to Vermont and um, some other places around the Northeast. And I always remember this one case um, and I pulled an article that's a little older so that we can kind of see how it was all viewed. Um, it's in Burlington, Vermont. But the reason I remember this case is because I lived in an apartment like exactly like this woman lived in. Like I had this uh, this place in a downtown area where it was an apartment, but it was part of a house. Um, and I always like something about the front door and the porch area on her place like it just reminded me of this. Um, it was almost the same color even um, of this apartment that I used to live in. So her case has always stood out in my head and she comes up during the Ted Bundy case. Um, there's news in her case, but I want to read an older article. This is from uh, July 26, 2021. And uh, it's actually from a series called mystery in the mountains. And the author uh, writes for my Valley.com, which is a, uh, a new source up there. Her name is Libby Farrow and it's short, but I felt like it was important because it's an older take on a, on sort of a, a an old missing. So it's a slightly older than the news, ver- like the new news version of an old case. And here's what it says. Um, it's Burlington police department's oldest cold case. A young school teacher found brutally murdered in her Brooks Avenue apartment in Burlington, Vermont. Rita Kern was only 24 years old when her roommate came upon her body. The unsolved murder still has her sister, Mary Campbell, shocked and feeling hopeless. We don't know any more today, 50 years later, than we knew the day of the murder, said Mary Campbell. On July 20th of 1971, one of Rita's two roommates found her lying on the bedroom floor of the room that they shared. Rita was sexually assaulted and beaten on the head and face before she was manually strangled to death. She had actually lived at home all her life until June of 1971. She found an ad in the Burlington Free Press looking for a roommate part-time for the summer. 
it seemed to be a good fit, so she moved out about one month before she was murdered. This is according to Campbell. Detective Tom Chinette with the Burlington Police Department said there was no sign of forced entry, and it appeared as if Rita was getting ready for bed as she was found with curlers in her hair. She had been viciously attacked. She showed signs of blunt force trauma, and it did appear that she fought back against the attacker, Chinette said. According to police, Rita had been receiving mysterious calls before her death. There was a piece of out phone calls that had come in and some heavy breathing on the phone when you answered it, Chinette said. Rita was a full-time second grade teacher at Milton Elementary School, and in the summers, she worked part-time as a maid at the South, Bur- South Burlington Colonial Motor Inn, located next door to the Elizabeth Lund Home for Unwed Mothers, where Ted Bundy was born. Because of this connection to an infamous serial killer, many thought Ted Bundy should be considered a suspect. Chinette said that Rita's death fit how Bundy killed his victims, and he was active at the time, he said. There is debate on whether he was accounted for or not. Mary Campbell even wrote Bundy a letter asking if he murdered her sister. We asked the FBI when they were interrogating him whether if she was one of his cases, and we got a letter back from the FBI that said he did not deny it or acknowledge it, said Campbell. Shortly after her murder, state's attorney Patrick Leahy, now a U.S. senator, wanted no information released to the public about the progress of the investigation. I don't know why there was a blackout, but it was disappointing as a family to not have her in the news every day. By the time the blackout came back, you know, news gets old fast, said Campbell. Today, the case remains as cold as a Vermont winter day. If you have any information regarding the murder of Rita Curran, please contact Burlington Police Department's cold case tip line or Vermont State Police Major Crimes Unit. So this is an article that's basically, this is what I call an anniversary article. It's July 26th of 2021, which so it's like almost two years ago now that this article came out. And the reason it feels sort of important to me is because this information has now changed. And it changed quickly. So it and, wasn't that cold, was it? <laughs> yeah, it, it was not that cold. And so, you know, whenever somebody starts like leading towards a serial killer in a case like this, I always like, I have a lot of questions about how they get there. And I do think at time, at times, like, okay, absolutely certain serial killers could be responsible uh, for some of these crimes. Uh, but there is, there was a, there was a press conference this week and here's a, a story published about that press conference from a guy named Darren Perrin. Uh, this is for WCAX three, which is like the CBS affiliate up in Burlington, Vermont. And here's what it says. Uh, this is from February 21st of 2023. Police say the case is now closed on Burlington's oldest unsolved murder. Tuesday, they named the killer in a case that was that has spanned half a century. Police identified the killer of Rita Curran as William DeRuz. DeRuz lived in the same apartment building as Curran. It was a day Rita Curran's family feared would never come. Hers was one of more than 50 unsolved murders in Vermont, but that's no longer the case. We were a couple of years apart, said Mary Curran Campbell. Kern Campbell shared a love of music with her big sister, Rita, 
Mary was into tap dancing, and Rita was a talented singer who, by all accounts, was kind, smart, hardworking, and a beloved second-grade teacher in Milton. She was very dedicated, said Mary. Rita's future looked bright until July 20th, 1971. I don't know what she would have been like, her sister said. I don't have that image because she's always 24 years old to me. In a crime that rocked the Queen City, Rita Kern was brutally beaten, sexually assaulted, and strangled inside of her bedroom at an apartment on Brooks Avenue in Burlington. The gruesome murder shattered the neighborhood's sense of security at the time and triggered one of Vermont's most notorious unsolved mysteries. Who killed Rita Curran? It was a question her family thought might never be answered. The years rolled into decades, Mary Curran Campbell said. Even though we might not ever give up hope, we really felt at this point the person was probably dead and we'd never know who did it. But Tuesday, police revealed a major development in the cold case. We are all confident that William DeRuse is responsible for the aggravated murder of Rita Curran, said Burlington Police Lieutenant Detective Jim Treeb at a press conference Tuesday. Police identified Rita Curran's killer as DeRuse, a neighbor living in the same building in an upstairs apartment that he shared with his wife. He was 31 at the time. He didn't know Rita. She'd only moved from her parents' home into her apartment a couple of weeks before. Police say DeRuz got in through an unlocked door and found Curran alone in her nightclothes ready for bed. Her roommates were out for a late night dinner and drinks. Police say there's evidence that shows that Rita Curran fought for her life. The amount of evidence was just staggering. This was the most investigated case the Burlington police ever had, said Burlington police's Tom Shinette. Detectives at the Burlington Police Department were assigned to the Curran case over the decades, but it wasn't until about three years ago that the Burlington Police Department put a large team of investigators and crime ID technicians on it, basically a CSI unit. Really, it was the enormity of the case that needed the team approach, said Chenette. DeRuz had been questioned by police the day Curran's body was found, but they say he convinced his then-wife to provide an alibi. That wife interviewed 50 years later, admitted she had lied to the police that night. In fact, DeRuz had gone for a walk to cool down at the time of the murder after the couple had gotten into a fight. But investigators are convinced that DeRuz's wife didn't know her husband had murdered Curran. I think she was coerced, Jeanette said. They also say that DeRuz had a history of violence and manipulating women, choking his second wife unconscious and stabbing one of her friends randomly. The key piece of evidence needed to pinpoint the killer was right in front of investigators all along. A cigarette butt discarded at the scene, but kept all these years. It cracked the case. The cigarette dropped there and burned out on the floor next to her body, said Treve. Given his violent past and proximity to the murder, DeRue's name had been added to the suspect list, and they tracked down a half-brother in Alabama to get a DNA sample. It's able to detect things that we wouldn't have been able to detect back in the day, said Amy Kuzanich, a Burlington police criminal ID tech. Through advanced testing, they determined without a doubt the cigarette came from DeRue's. They were able to develop a DNA profile off of the filter that would have touched his mouth. Further testing of other evidence, like Curran's clothing, also determined that DeRue's DNA was likely on that, too. Curran's murder gained national attention when at one point infamous serial killer Ted Bundy was investigated as a possible suspect, but he was quickly dismissed as the likely killer. We were numb, said Mary Curran Campbell, 51 and a half years, and it's the guy upstairs. 
She says their close-knit family is what we got was what got them through the decades of dead ends, heartbreak, and waiting. And now the answer to the biggest question of all brings some peace. I had only 22 years, and it's been 50. My children never knew her. My grandchildren never knew her. They're the ones, and people said, how did you get through it? How did you get through it? I got a lot of rocks holding me up. But William DeRuze will not face justice. He died of a drug overdose in a California motel in 1986. There's no evidence linking DeRuze to other murders in Vermont, but his DNA is now in a national database. In addition to thanking the Burlington Police Department, the Kern family also thanked Season of Justice, an organization that helps with funding cold cases, and gave money to the BPD to assist with funding. Um, there's a supplementary investigative report attached here. There's a GoFundMe set up. Uh, this is all at WCAX.com if people want to check it out. What do you think of that? Like, what do you think of, uh, of what's going on there? Um, I think that that's exactly how all the cold cases will end up having to be solved. Like you mentioned, they had, uh, you know, if to the extent he was considered a suspect, his wife gave him an alibi, right? Yeah. And, um, you know, that happens, right? It definitely does. It definitely happens. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, uh, I think a lot of times, uh, especially husbands and wives, they really don't know um, the damage, the the entirety of the damage that they're doing, right? But it, uh, to me, and now it was a weird, it's weird that uh, somebody said, like, it's likely to match. That's one of the things I wanted to bring up with you, yeah. Um, because it should either match or not match. I, I don't understand why there's ambiguity there. Um, but it uh, it's interesting because Ted Bundy was, um, you know, posited, but they make it sound like it was blown off really fast, but that's not really how I remember it. Um, I, I can't remember exactly. Um, I, I never thought he was responsible for the crime, but it seemed like quite a bit got like of it. Like it may have stalled the case a little bit when they thought it was him. Right. As opposed to looking yes. for who it actually is. Um, and so I, I think that, yeah, I really don't like that. Um, likely matches him. I, I don't understand that. Um, but it's interesting that it ends up being the upstairs neighbor, like not the notorious serial killer that had been mentioned, you know, a million years ago. Um, the case was never cold. They never got any new information. They had everything that they had, you know, from the case. The only thing that changed was that they, you know, had it analyzed. Yeah. Well, so you know, the this, this cigarette butt is talked about, you know, early in the investigation um, that it's there. Uh, it has like the, the, the brand of it. Um, it was, I believe it was located while someone was taking a blue marking pencil around the body and making like an outline, like was f like a thing back in the day. Well, that, that would be, um, that's a little bit of a stretch for me, I guess, depending on, they collected it, right? So, it they collected it, and it's mentioned in, like, so there's a 34-page narrative report that is just copies of old reports, if that makes sense. Right. Um, and the cigarette butt is mentioned multiple times in this report as, like, 
being observed. So why did they collect collect that at that point? It was laying under her arm. I know that, but like, what good would a cigarette butt do at that point in time? Um, you know, I don't know, except I can tell you this. The people at the scene weren't focused on whether the cigarette butt had any evidence related to it or not. They collected it from the perspective of if we find someone who smokes this brand. I see. Okay. Yeah. Um, so it wasn't, they weren't looking at it from the perspective of identification right. like, through forensics. <laughs> Correct. No, that makes sense. Okay. That makes sense. Um, but uh, I guess I, I was thinking too broadly because, I mean, I guess it could be possible. Uh, I think you can tell someone's a secretor or not based on their saliva, maybe. Um, you know, there, like there were several things they potentially could have done. I don't know when that would have come about. Yeah, it it's it's sort of. I I think that your initial uh, thought on it was like just if they had a good suspect that happened to smoke those same cigarettes, right? Yeah. Um, I think that that's probably one of the uh, reasons they would have collected it. And, you know, it's a good thing they did. I think they should go ahead and, especially since this is where this is going to lie, right? Um, yeah. It's going to be that he did this, he was never convicted of it, and he died um, a long time ago. But, uh, you know, there's their the case is resolved, and I don't feel like it's... I don't think they should cut corners just to save money, not to like make sure it actually matches. Um, but they did say the cigarette butt match. They were just saying that other items at the crime scene, uh, maybe they didn't have enough to get a full profile, but what they had matched enough, maybe. Hmm. Uh, that that seems sort of right. I mean, so if I if I read everything correctly, I believe he had been cremated. And yeah. so they even had to use the half brother to build out part of the profile. I don't know. You know, this is one of those cases that ties into what I was talking about earlier. People were saying, you know, sort of online, they were saying, well, you know, why didn't they run this through, uh, run this through CODIS? I think is how people were saying it. And, you know, could they be convinced? I'm a little concerned. It feels, you know, if I were to play conspiracy, Conspiracy theorist. I think I would talk more about the DNA being likely. Does that make sense? What do you mean? I think I have questions about the whole idea of whether or not that DNA was a match. So you know, and we—I mean, you can read this. It's like here in this. Uh, uh, it's a pretty detailed report. I worry that we get a little too far off into thinking people did things when they didn't. Um, and I'm not saying that's what happened here, but I'm saying I hope it's a match that what they found on her body was preserved in a way that they could confirm it was a match. That's what I hope. With a half-brother, so, you know, you get 50% of your DNA from each parent. And siblings, uh, so you're already down to, like, they only got, half of their DNA from the same person, right? Because they're right. half siblings. Right. Um, and so it would, uh, it is possible that it would be too hard to, uh, I mean, you can make a match 
and not be able to match it on partial profiles because the percentage would just be too low, like depending on how much of their DNA they each got from the parent that they share. Yeah. But are you saying that you think that maybe it wasn't a match? No, I'm not. I'm not necessarily. I'm just saying when they say it's likely a match, I'm just hoping that they got enough. Um, that's just how I look at it. Well, the the cigarette was a match, right? That's correct. I'm talking about the DNA that was on the body because. So I think if this is not an enclosed area, like if this is on a in an alley, I think the DNA becomes a lot less useful. I don't see why they even. Yeah, I know. Brought up, like, it seems like it would match or whatever they said that was weird. Um, that's that's really strange to me. Um, it does sound like, like, so for one thing, his wife gave him an alibi when he had actually gone out. So that's, you know, that's something, right? Yeah. Um, the family is happy with this. I mean, he seems like a good candidate. Uh, now, putting it into CODIS, he wasn't in CODIS. Are they saying to see if it matches any other crimes? Yeah, I think the idea here is to figure out if he's going to be tied to any other sexual assaults or murders or well, other potential, potential evidence. I mean, if, if he's leaving cigarettes at this crime scene, I can't imagine he's being any more careful. Right. Um, they would. So they would have to just... Uh, I wonder... Hmm. Because they wouldn't put the brothers... DNA in CODIS, they would have to put the profile from the cigarette butt that they lifted. I think they would put the evidentiary, and that's one of the things I brought up in this whole CODIS thing. I think it would be the evidentiary DNA would be in there, meaning whatever they have that they have developed profile-wise that was originally considered unidentified. I believe that's what goes in the CODIS. Which is also weird, right? Actually, I don't think so. Um, I think that uh, CODIS is, its sole purpose is to be um, a DNA depository, a DNA profile depository, right? Combined, however, whatever the other... (laughs) Whatever the other words of the acronym are, it's a combined DNA database, right? Right, yes. And um, as far as I know, like, there is unidentified DNA, but there's also identified DNA in there. Uh, Perpetrators who are required to give their DNA samples because of various laws that are in place, their DNA is in CODIS. Okay, Just, just bear with me for one second, then I promise we'll get to the next case that we're doing today. So, you don't have William DeRue's DNA. You built a profile off of his brother's DNA. His body is not exhumable. I don't believe. I believe he was cremated. cremated. So, you've got no body to get an actual DNA profile off of to confirm it's the offender. You have... DNA on a crime scene on a cigarette butt and possibly on some of her clothing or a partial DNA profile. How do you put William DeRue's in CODIS? You don't. You put the cigarette butt in, and if it matches anything. You just start looking for links to William DeRue's 
going backwards. Right. Yeah. You, you have to find it in other ways. Um, that's what I was thinking um, because, and I don't know exactly how they did it, but it seems like they got enough of a match to, to release this press release. Right. Um, and it's the final report of who did it. Yeah. Um, and so it, you know, you're right. They wouldn't have the perpetrator's profile, all that they would have, which it seems to me like this would have happened already because, uh, uh, they did a direct comparison match here, right? Where they sought out this guy, a family member of this guy, since he was deceased and not retrievable, right? They sought out a family member. They took the family member's DNA and they did a direct comparison, right? Yep. Okay. And so that makes me wonder, well, did they put it in CODIS to begin with? And it didn't have a hit. There were other things that linked them and led them. Uh, I assume the analysis, because uh, this is like brand new news, right? Yeah, yeah. This I is mean, like this for the week. most point, for the most part, like the weird corruption that happened and like DNA lab testing, like you know, at late '90s going into the 2000s, like that doesn't exist anymore, right? It was stupid to begin with, and it just like so, you know, there's something fairly straightforward that's bringing this all together here. Yeah, um, but it seems to me like before they would have sought out this uh, this half brother, that they would have ran it through CODIS, and in the process of running it through CODIS. Uh, anything that had a similar profile uh, to what they had retrieved from the cigarette butt would have shown as a match. Yeah. But I don't know that. Like, they don't actually say that. But whatever goes into CODIS should be automatically compared to everything else in there. I don't know if that happens. Yeah, I I tend to agree with you. Um, it, it, you know, this this debate is relevant to the current story that we're telling. And I'm going to bring up, so I'm going to bring up this really interesting article uh, from a ways back because we're about to get into a couple of different cases that may or may not be related to this killer. This is a, this is a CBC article. So uh, cbc.ca, uh, which is, you know, Canada, it's British Columbia. Um, it's actually from 2012. The, the writer's name is Jason Proctor. And it is an interesting article, but it, it ties into, you know, changes in DNA and sort of questions that I have. And, and here's how this, here's the headline. Arresting officer thought man might be serial killer. The Oregon police officer who first arrested Bobby Jack Fowler, the U.S. convict recently linked to three British Columbia cold cases says he had a feeling the accused murderer might turn out to be a serial killer. Dave Bavaro worked as a patrol officer for the Newport police department in June of 1995. He responded to an emergency call about a naked woman jumping from an open motel window, two stories to the parking lot below. When he first arrived on the scene, he says he saw the backup lights of a car coming on and he pulled in to block the vehicle from leaving. The driver was Bobby Jack Fowler, the man now linked by DNA to the 1974 murder of 16-year-old Colleen McMillan. Bavero says he 
placed Fowler in the back of his police car. Now, more than 17 years later, he says he still recalls a conversation he had with with a prosecutor at the time. I said, it wouldn't surprise me if he has committed murder somewhere else in the country. He might even be a serial killer. This is Bavaro telling CBC News. There was just something about him in the whole incident that we wouldn't be surprised. We wouldn't be surprised if he had committed murder or was a serial killer. Believe it or not, that was their actual conversation we had. Bavaro says the case still sticks out in his mind because of the disturbing nature of what happened to the victim. According to court documents, the woman met Fowler at a bar and agreed to accompany him, accompany him to his hotel room where she took a shower. She claimed that when she emerged in a towel, Fowler began talking in a way that alarmed her. As she sat there, the defendant said he believed that women actually wanted to be raped, says a statement from the case. Fowler left the room and came back with a rope, which he put around the victim's ankle. She testified that he punched her four times in the face and then began speaking in a very low, very slow, and very deep voice. She said, I will never forget in my whole life this man's eyes. He said to me, I think I'll put you in the ocean. And I knew with every fiber of my being that the man was going to kill me. I knew he was going to kill me. Bavaro says her fear matched his recollection of the events that followed. The woman jumped first from the window of Fowler's room onto a roof and then from the roof to the ground below. She still had this rope around her ankle. She was trying to shake the rope off of her leg like it was some sort of monster, like it was a big snake or something wrapped around her leg, he says. She was screaming and crying and saying that he was going to kill her. Authorities now suspect that may have been the case. Fowler was incarcerated in 1996 for kidnapping, assault, and attempted rape in connection with the woman's allegations. He died in prison in 2006, but this spring, his DNA turned up as a match to evidence from the McMillan murder. RCMP believe he's also a strong suspect in the 1973 murders of Gail Waves and Pamela Darlington. Fowler is also being investigated in a pair of double homicides, so that's four victims, of teenage girls in Oregon. U.S. and Canadian officials say they're trying to track his movements over several decades, but they've already noticed a disturbing pattern between his movements and the disappearances or murders of young women. Bavero remembers the man he detained as unkempt and desperate to get away from the scene. He was cooperative, but he acted afraid, if anything, continually saying that he didn't do anything. He almost acted timid, he says. He just continually said that he didn't know what was going on. He just wanted to leave. He had no identification, and I don't even remember if he gave me his correct name or not. Bavaro, who now works for Lincoln County Parole and Probation, spent decades as a police officer. He says he's pleased to know he may have played even a small part in putting a serial killer behind bars. I guess I feel really good. I always felt proud or very good about the job I did, whether it was a major occurrence like this or something minor. Anything that could help somebody, I was very proud of the job that I did. This makes me feel really good. Now, where this comes from is we've been talking about the Eponic or the Highway of Tears cases in Canada. And the reason I say this is all sort of tied together is it's old DNA um, that has made this 
sort of, I don't know if it's a specter out of um, Bobby Jack Fowler. This guy's been dead a long time. William DeRuce had been dead a long time. Um, he died in 1986, so he died even before Bobby Jack Fowler. Let me ask you this. So we've already sort of established, we do not believe that the Epona cases are necessarily related in total, but there could be like little bits and pieces of them that are related, right? Yep. So with someone like William DeRuz, are you going to be shocked if we find out that like he has this timeline that gets developed similar to like the timeline that we used for uh, Robert Long's case where like there's missing and murdered people along the way? Yeah, I don't think he's a serial guy. I mean, I could see them trying to do it maybe, but uh, he was just mad at his wife and he came across her. Um, is that what's happening? I don't know. I don't know yet. That's, I'm, I'm bringing it up before I bring up the fact that I feel like that's kind of what went down with Bobby Jock Fowler. I'm not saying he isn't a serial killer. I'm just saying it's it's almost like we're not catching serial killers in the same real time that we used to. So that's um, why I bring up the question. I see. Well, okay. So one thing uh, that would be important to note, I think, is the fact that, um, you know, Bobby Jack Fowler was in jail. Yeah. Now, my presumption is he was, the other one wasn't in jail, right? Correct. Uh, he died of an overdose. Yeah, he, he was a drug overdose in a motel in California. Right. Huh, that's interesting. All the way from Vermont. Yeah, that's that's sort of where I'm headed. Mm, that's interesting. Well, we should see what else happened across the country. Now that, because, okay, so her death was, um, can, you know, Ted Bundy was considered uh, as the perp for her death. And so that tells you, like, the time frame, right? Yep. Um, and so there was a lot of crazy things happening during that time frame. Um, I couldn't believe it when we did uh, cover Ted Bundy and just like all the crazy things that were happening uh, to young women, basically young, uh, I guess, uh, or late teens, early twenties women. They were just, I mean, it was really bad. And Ted Bundy wasn't the only perpetrator, right? Um so I I don't know. I think it I think it would be I think the more you commit, uh the more acts that you do, the more likely you are to get caught, right? Especially if you're a serial uh predator, right? Um he, he it doesn't seem like he ever got caught. Uh I don't even know aside from the domestic stuff he didn't have any sort of history, right? I, we don't know yet. Like okay. we, we, he has some, you're talking about William DeRuz? He has right, some right. criminal history, um, you know, and we're kind of on Bobby Jack Fowler, but I, I was comparing the two of them for a minute. And so my, my response to that basically with the information I know right off the top of my head, which like you said, the whole thing just came out that they matched the DNA, right? Um, as far as Rita Curran's case goes, I think the main difference to look at is that Bobby Jack Fowler was in custody and William was not right. Yeah. So that's a differentiation that sticks out to me. Yeah. It's a big, it's a big difference. My, um, did you wonder, so I wondered why, 
Maybe it's because she escaped, but why would you think somebody that just like viciously attacked a girl, but she got away? Why would you immediately think they were a serial killer? That is the complete genesis for what I'm talking about here. Because in my experience, most of these guys aren't coming across like they're serial killers. And I'm sure like, you know, I don't, there's something about him that reminds me of Henry Lucas. There's always been something about Bobby Jack that reminds me of Henry Lucas. And that's why I was asking you these questions because we're about to get into some court documents and some timelines in the next episode about Bobby Jack and these other cases that we've sort of mentioned in passing. But I, I was just curious, why do you think the cop said that? Do you think it's a look, the way he talked? Like, what do you think it was? I don't know. Um, I I think that unless you're at the scene of a murder, it's a strange thing um, to foretell, or I guess. Um, it's just a strange observation to make. At even, I don't know, even at one singular murder, it seems like it would be just a really strange thing um, unless you could really point to, like, you had worked cases, you know, in the vicinity and the time frame, and you could see it, that it was a serial. Well, that's what I picture. Or is it something is so alarming about this scene that, like, you, you can't get, like, you, you can't wrap your head around the type of person that would do it? Right. I mean, I read the account. I think, I don't know what I read. I don't know if it was a court document or what, but it was very, very in-depth. Yeah, that, that's, that's, we're actually going to go over that for the next episode, the, the account. When I read it, I mean, there are some frightening things, but it, I don't know that, like, the response warned, I don't know that the, what happened warranted, like, that whole, like, well, I thought he might be a serial killer thing. Maybe... That's, you know, the difference between me and, like, trained law enforcement. They can see it, right? I kind of doubt it. But, I mean, it's possible. Um, I would say that at the very least, you would need to at least have a killer, right? <laughs> um, yeah. For, for you to presume that the person is a serial killer. Um, That's exactly what I was – that is exactly what I was thinking. And I think that um, – now, granted, they, uh, they've only connected him with one – of the Apana cases uh, with DNA, right? Yeah. And they've made some, they've drawn some lines to kind of link him to other ones, but there's no DNA evidence there. Uh, so, you know, if he killed one girl and then he's got this other attack, he's still not a serial killer. Exactly. As far as I know, there's not a whole lot more that supposedly he's done. We're going to look at these uh, court documents and we're going to start talking about this pair of double homicides that comes up um, and how he might or might not be linked to that. Thank you so much for joining us today. We'll see you next time.